What's up, everybody? Welcome to today's episode of Podmosh. Today we have Russ Calverly. Um, if, but before I get into that episode, uh, just a reminder, if you're wanting to support the show for no specific reason, you can find the link to that in the description below. And don't forget, guys, to get our heads out of the sand uh, and be aware of what's truly going on around us. Uh, perspective is everything. Last episode with Sheree, I raised awareness to the human trafficking market that's happening literally within... 45 minutes of where we all live within the DFW area. Sometimes it's happening next door. Uh, Dallas, Houston, those are hot spots nationwide, worldwide, uh, because of that I-35 corridor. Uh, let's just try not to be naive to what's actually happening around us. There's a lot of things, and when we kind of see what's truly happening around us, we can gain a fresh and healthy perspective. All right. Russ Calverly is now an aviation professor in California after retiring as a police lieutenant. He is also the president of Liga International, a nonprofit organization that takes personnel and medical supplies to one of the most dangerous areas in the world. Super fun conversation, guys, as we get into a variety of topics that even include his time at Quantico. I hope you guys enjoy. I had a blast talking to him and I learned a lot. Enjoy. All right, well, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, you're welcome. What's your name? Russ Calverly. All right, Russ, tell me what you do. Well, I'm actually retired. I spent uh, 27, 28 years in law enforcement. Uh, <laughs> I just spilled a drink on me. That was, that was I'm good. having a bad day. Yeah, that was good. Right, I, right before we came in here, I just rolled the crap out of my ankle. Yeah, exactly. It's swelling currently. Yeah, so I spent a career in law enforcement, retired as a, a police lieutenant about uh, 10, 11 years ago. And, uh, Where at? Uh, city of Chino in Chino, California. It's in the Inland Empire. It's about 40 miles east of Los Angeles. Okay. What's the population like there? Chino? Uh, in Chino, it, was, uh, it is about 80,000, 90,000 people. Somewhere, okay. Somewhere around there. About um, 18, 19 square miles. Okay. And I think, was it, is Burleson's like 60,000 or 70,000? Does that sound about right to you? Yeah. Okay. Trying to compare it to. Okay. So you, you spent how many years there? Uh, at that department, I spent 20, 24 and a half years at that, that department. I worked in a previous department for that. So total, it was 28, 29 years in law enforcement. Is Chino where you started? No. Where'd you start? Laverne, a place called Laverne. It's up uh, near Pomona, California, okay. about 30 miles east of Los Angeles. I started there as a kid. I was, uh, uh, you know, typical high school student, had no idea what I wanted to do in life. Uh, just trying to struggle through high school and get out of high school. And I had a, a police sergeant come into a civics class and talk about careers in law enforcement. It was the topic of the day. And at the end of that discussion, that, that was it. I knew exactly what I wanted to do, where I wanted to go. I wanted to be a cop. That's all I could think about. Why? And, uh, you know, I was just, in, I was intrigued by, you know, I think that the common cliche is that, you know, you want to go out and help people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe there was some of that. But in all honesty, um, the idea, honestly, the idea of authority intrigued mm-hmm. me. Right. And um, and I was young. I was 17, 18 years old. I was young and um, wearing a uniform, you know, was was intriguing to me. Because at one point earlier, I thought about joining the military. Mm-hmm. So that whole idea of now I can wear a uniform, but I can be local. I can be in the city that I lived in, all of that type of stuff. Uh, the whole the whole, whole idea of that intrigued me. <clears throat> so I got involved in law enforcement literally when I was 17 years old as a police explorer, became a police cadet, became a dispatcher, became a reserve police officer, 
And then what year is this? This is 1979, 1980. Okay. So in 1980, I got hired. Uh, I got hired as a reserve police officer, and I worked for a couple of years. In fact, I was just telling the story to my nephew um, yesterday that uh, I was 20 years old. I was actually uh, 19 years old, just getting ready to turn 20, and I was working for my dad in a in a machine shop. And I hated it. I hated it every second. I mean, I just, I mean, there, there, there was nothing good about the machine shop. It was dirty. It was stinky. Uh-huh. It was hot. It was, you know, my dad didn't pay anything. There was nothing about the machine shop that I enjoyed at all. And my dad just knew growing up that all of his boys were going to be machinists. Mm-hmm. Well, I wasn't going to have any part of it. And uh, so I was working at the police department. And um, I was a cadet. I was a reserve officer. And... Back then, in, the, in 1980, that realm, our department was only like 28, 29 total sworn police officers. Mm. To have an opening for a new police officer was like every five years. It was like unheard of. Oh, my gosh. They're actually going to hire a police officer. So it was actually that competitive. Yeah. Was it like that well, everywhere? It was, it was competitive, but it was also that nobody ever left. You know, it was just uh. people stayed in. People didn't retire. People just, they hung on to their jobs forever and ever and ever. And it just wasn't a turnover. Today, it's they can't yeah. they can't hire enough people. But Especially back then, today. Sure. But, you know, 30, 40 years ago, I mean, it, jobs were at a premium. It was a premium to get a police officer job. Huh. So the chief, the chief announced that they were going to hire a police officer. That somebody had left. And, and actually, I think the truth is, I think they fired somebody. And they're going to hire a police officer. Well, I was 19 years old. I was just getting ready to turn 20. Like within 10 days, I was going to turn 20. And this is in Laverne, right? In Laverne, right. Okay. In the city of Laverne. And I, the city we lived in, we grew yeah. you know, we grew up in high school, went to high school there, all of that. So it was a local, you know, local small community, real small community out of, out of Los Angeles. And um, so... I knew there was no way in the world that I was going to get hired as a police officer at 19 going on 20 years old. Yeah. So one day I worked a graveyard shift and I was leaving, uh, I was working dispatch and I was walking down the hallway almost as a zombie because I worked all night long <laughs> and here comes the chief walking in the back door and, you know, of course, you kind of yeah. perk up and, you know, good morning, chief. How are you? Uh, good morning. Probably didn't even know my name. Good morning. <laughs> and he walks by and, you know, it was one of those things that I did, but I didn't even think about it. I didn't give it a thought. I turned around. Hey, Chief, can I ask you a question? And it was like, I mean, if anybody would have witnessed that, they'd go, oh, my gosh, what, what's Calvary doing? He's crazy. Is what? that a big no-no or something? Yeah, because you just, you know, people at my level as a dispatcher, as a cadet, as a 19-year-old, yeah. if you want to talk to the Chief, you go talk to some underlings first, and you get to the Chief, right? The Chief turns around and says, sure, you know, what's up? What can I do for you? I said, hey, I heard there's a police officer position that's come available. Yeah, we're going to hire somebody. So, Chief, let me ask you something. I said, I'm 19 years old. I'll be 20 here in a couple of weeks. I know that I can't get hired. Would you allow me to just take the test? Allow me to go through the process? Because, Chief, someday I want to work for you. Someday I want to be one of your police officers. So if I can go through the exam, if I can take the exam today, then later on down the road, two, three years down the road, I'll be better prepared to take the test. I'll know what to expect. And he kind of paused for a minute and goes, you know, I've never had anybody ask me that. Hmm. And I said, you know, Chief, I just, I, I really would love to do it. He goes, sure, I don't see anything wrong with it. So he sent me off to go see this lieutenant who was in charge of the hiring process. I went and told him, you know, hey, lieutenant, you know, the chief told me. And this guy looked at me like, you mean you even talk to the chief? You're crazy. 
And was so, this kind of like a good old boy type of absolutely. department? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And back then, in the 1980s, every department was yeah. the good old boy. Even LAPD was the good old boy, as big as it was. Yeah. You know, back then, everything was who got patted on the back, you know, got, you know, they're the ones that got everything, yeah. you know. So, again, you know, long story short, I, I took the test. I took the process. And when it was all said and done, I had to take a written exam. I had to take an oral interview mm -hmm. with, you know, uh, senior officers. and I just did all that with Dallas. Yeah, exactly. So. <laughs> yeah, I went through that whole yeah. process. And when it was all said and done, I came out number one. They what? had two lateral police officers from, from Riverside Sheriff's Office yeah. that had four or five years experience. And, and I came out number one. But based off the written exam results and the huh. oral exam results, I came out number one. And, uh, but they couldn't hire me. You know, so they ended up hiring. Why couldn't they hire you? I was too young. I was how, 19, barely 20 years old. How long, how old do you have to be to be a cop? 21. 21 Even, even today? Yes. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. huh. Yeah, 21. In California, you do. I don't know about Texas, but in California, you got to be 21 years of age. Do you know? It's still in Texas? Huh. Wow. So, um, so I took the test, came out number one, and, you know, I was totally humble, which is unlike me. I was totally humble. <laughs> And I said, yeah, I, I took the test for the experience. You know, thanks for, thanks for the opportunity. I remember writing the chief a thank you note. Chief, thanks for letting me take the test. And so some time went by, not very long, you know, probably, you know, 30, 40, 50 days. And I was working at my dad's machine shop down in Nomani. And, and I'm out there in this place where I'm miserable and grease and oil <laughs> and everything else. And my dad walks out and says, hey, you got a phone call. Okay. So I go into the office, pick up the phone. And it's the captain from Laverne PD. And he goes, oh, this is, uh, this is Captain Griggs. Uh, he goes, you have an appointment to see the chief today at 3.30 this afternoon. I, I, excuse mm -hmm. me, sir? You have an appointment to see the chief. And I literally said to him, what I do wrong? Because, I mean, I was a dispatcher. I was a reserve police officer. I, you know, I was involved in a lot of things in the department. I'm going, oh, my gosh. And now my brain's going crazy. What am I going to see the chief for? And I asked him what I do. He goes, look. It's a suit and tie affair. So 3.30 this afternoon, suit and tie. Make sure your shoes are shined. Shave and see the chief at 3.30. Come to my office first. I'll take you to the chief. Uh, yes, sir. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I literally started shaking. and I didn't stop shaking. Sitting in the chief's office like four hours later, I was still shaking. I had no idea what was going on. So I went home, cleaned up, went in, walked in the chief's office, and the chief said, uh, he goes, you know, Russ, he goes, you took that test, and uh, you came in number one. So, yes, sir. He goes, and we hired, uh, actually hired a guy by the name of Steve Martin. It's kind of funny. That's <laughs> actually his real name. Later became the best man of my wedding. Huh. Uh, we hired a guy by the name of Steve Martin. I said, yeah, I, I, I've met Steve, you know, very nice man, you know. And um, he goes, the city council last night at their city council meeting approved an open position. And I'm going to put, I'm going to put you through the academy if you're willing to go. Mm -hmm. And I literally, you know, back in my chair, I said, chief. As much as I'm honored, as much as I, I appreciate this opportunity, I said, you realize that just like three weeks ago, I turned 20. I'm 20 years old. He goes, I know that. He said, I was able to get a waiver through the governor's office through what they call the police officer's standards of training, which is like the state police commission. I was able to get a waiver. And Jeez. you start the academy on February the 1st. I'll never forget it. I Is think, that pretty rare? Yes. Extremely has, it, has it ever happened before? Not the, I, I, I would be willing to bet that it has, but I don't know about it. Wow. I've never heard of it happening. So, I mean, this was like January 24th, 25th. Academy started February 1st. Oh, wow. 
So I went to the academy. So how, how was your dad in all this? Because I know he he wanted a, a CNC sons, yeah. right? <laughs> not happy. No, seriously, not happy. Okay. As a matter of fact, even to the point of being angry and to the point of being flat out disrespectful. Huh. Flat out like you're wasting your life. You're wasting your time. Being a cop is a low rent. You know, you're, you're just... You know, you're just wasting your time. This is a stupid job for you to have. Is that how a lot of people thought, though? Because no, I don't think so. Because I wonder, because it's it's mm-hmm. honorable, and it, even today, okay. it's there's that debate, which I I have much respect for cops. Right, I try to be one. Right. Um. But then, what was the culture like around? No, police? I think it was I think it was an honorable position. As a matter of fact, I would almost argue it was, it's much more honorable back then than it is today. Yeah. With everything going on today with Black Lives Matter yeah. and Antifa and, you know, the, the hatred, the, the, some of the hatred towards cops. Back then, it was a very honorable, very prestigious position. My dad, uh, my, my dad had a couple of issues, I think, going on. Number one, when he was a kid, I think he told us he got like 17 tickets before he was 17 <laughs> years old. So he thought the cops were out to get him. They were picking on him. You know, he probably, to, to my knowledge, he probably got arrested, never even told us about it. Um, and the other thing is he was so hung up on his boys taking over his machine shop. Mm. I could have told him I was going to be an astronaut and I was going to go to the moon. And he just said, you're wasting your time mm. because you should be working in my machine shop running my business. Mm. And so he was very tunnel vision and very yeah. single mind. I don't think that my mom uh, had a completely different approach. My mom was very proud, very pleased to what I was doing. I think my dad was just off in another, in a completely different place yeah. with the whole idea. So I went to the academy. Uh, back then, the academy was only 13 weeks long. Today's a, today, it's 26 weeks, so it's doubled. Depending but, where you go, too. Yeah, 13 weeks. I did very well in the academy, graduated the academy. I came out. <clears throat> I was uh, Again, I was just telling Gabriel the story yesterday. Um, I was assigned a training officer who I knew because I was a reserve officer and I grew up in the department. And uh, we went out on patrol three days. He was my trainer. On the third day, we ate, we pulled into a, a wiener schnitzel and had lunch, and he got food poisoning. And on the fourth day, I showed up to briefing, and my train my trainer's not there. And the sergeant says, well, real good job, Carverly, really nice. You already made your train officer sick. And uh, by the end of the <laughs> briefing, he threw me the keys and said, go, oh you're on your own. Wow. So my training program was three days, and I was out on my own. So, what? yeah, but, but, but again, in, in all honesty, I'd been a reserve officer there for a couple of That's years. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I knew the department, I knew law, I mean, I knew a lot of the procedures and stuff. Talk so. to me a little bit about Laverne, the city in that time, crime rates, population yeah. size. Yeah. Bedroom community, uh, virtually no crime rate. Yeah. Um, if they had a, if they had a murder, it was probably every 10 years and it was like headlines of the newspaper. Yeah. So um, that's modern day Keene, which yes. is literally next door. Yeah. yeah. Very small bedroom community. Um, very kind of a, a uppity up, you know, yeah. community, kind of so to speak. Um, it's changed a lot over the years. Um, but um, it just crying. I mean, it would be not unusual to work a graveyard shift from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. and not get one call for service. Oh, wow. I not because... Everybody was asleep, minding their own business, yeah. and bad guys didn't come into the city. You know, huh. so uh, how big was the city? You said uh, probably about 15, 16 square miles, and about uh, thirty thousand population. Yeah. Twenty eight, thirty thousand population. Okay. Like I said, we only had 28, 29 police officers. Yeah. You know, for twenty four, twenty four seven. Yeah. So a very small uh, community, which actually, in part, led to the reason why I left because I left. 
uh, two and a half years later and went to Chino. And part of it was I was bored. Yeah, you I want, want some action. I wanted to do something. I yeah. wanted action. And my big goal, my big dream was I wanted to ride police motorcycles. And Laverne didn't have them. They were so yeah. small they didn't have them. Well, Chino had a, a motorcycle team. And that was one of them, one of the reasons it kind yeah. of drew me down there. And later in, in my career, that's what I did. So why motorcycles? Yeah. You know, motorcycle car? I thought it was cool. Have you ever seen a motor with the boots up yeah. to the top? And, yeah. you know, you drive by and the chicks are like drooling out the side. Of, yeah. <laughs> No, they, I mean, it was so common. There's been more motorcycle, police motorcycle accidents by motor officers driving by a plate glass window and looking at themselves uh. and smacking <laughs> their car or something. <laughs> I mean, it was just cool. So I mean, tell me a little bit more about your career in Chino. So Two years um, later, you, what yeah, happened? So two and a half years later, I went to Chino. I went through a full training program. You know, I didn't. it wasn't a three-day training program. It was probably a three-month training program. Uh, and uh, I loved the department, absolutely loved it. I lived there, which was really by coincidence. Huh. So I was living in the same place that I was working, which is somewhat unusual for a cop back in the 80s. But um, I, have a, I have a friend who did, they started off that same exact thing. They started off working right. the beat where their house was. Right. It was super weird for them. Right. They were super uncomfortable because they would respond to calls that right. were like their neighbors. And right. they know what's going on with their neighbors, which made right. them uncomfortable. And right. so how was that for you? So what we did, we kind of had a pact amongst us as a group of officers that if we got a call in our neighborhood, we let somebody else handle it. Huh. So we didn't get involved in it. We stayed out of that because there were times, you know, I get it. My somebody beating on my door at two o'clock in the morning. I, you know, get up and go answer the door, and you know, my husband's beating on me, or my husband's drunk, or you know, the dog got out, or you know, they wanted me to solve it. You know, call call the police department. You know, get it solved it that way. So we avoided trying to handle calls in our own neighborhood, unless it was something really big that required a lot of people. Was that kind of hard for you to do that, or were you no. pretty like, okay, I need, you need to call now one the right way? Yeah, no, it was very easy for me to do it because I just, the last thing I wanted to do was get involved in neighborhood disputes and have to deal with the aftermath of all that. It was very easy for me to just say, you know what, let, let somebody else handle it. Was there ever a time where that happened and if you didn't intervene, like knowing that if you didn't intervene, somebody could die or somebody can. No, I don't, no. I don't ever remember anything that serious. Yeah. I, I don't remember anything in, in my neighborhood yeah. that rose to that, to that level. <clears throat> I mean, it could have, but I just don't remember it. So Chino <clears throat> had a lot of action. That's why you moved there. It did. Uh, Chino um, had a lot of Mexican gangs. There was a gang, there was a gang in the city uh, that was born out of the city called the Chino Sinners. And it was part of the Mexican mafia which is a California state prison gang, and they were vicious. They were evil. And um, they, uh, their big claim to fame was that they went and executed um, some, some people on the steps of the local Catholic church. Uh, and they made a statement by doing it on the steps of the Catholic mm -hmm. church because in a Hispanic community like that, the Catholic church yeah, was, was everything. is everything, right? And they went and executed a couple of people on the church steps just to prove how superior they were. So there was wow. a lot of activity. Back in the, in the mid-80s, heroin, uh, street heroin, dirty mm -hmm. heroin was a big thing. PCP yeah. was a big thing in the mid-80s. And that Hispanic community down in, the, in what we call the barrio, the gang area, <clears throat> a lot of heroin, a lot of PCP down in that area. So it was a hopping city. Man, how how powerful was that game? And do they have ties just like yeah. MS-13? Yes, very powerful. Was it like a, a subcontract of MS-13? Or was the, it, was it was a subcontract of what they called the Mexican Mafia, which... And Mexican Mafia was... Exactly. Okay. 
Mix Mafia is just like MS-13. We're virtually the same thing. MS-13 comes from South America. Mm -hmm. Mexican Mafia, born in the United States, born really out of Los Angeles, the Los Angeles area. And the Chino Sinners was a branch of or a break off of the Mexican Mafia. Mm -hmm. MS-13... I don't even remember them being around in the, in the mid-1980s because, like I said, they're a South American gang that came up throughout the years. I don't even remember MS-13 during wow. that time. That's pretty but hard to think about even. Very violent gang. <clears throat> the city of Chino is known. We have uh, three state prisons in the, in, city Chino? Chino, in the city of Chino. Yeah, yeah, in that area. Wow. So, so put that into perspective because that's not normal. No. So put put that into perspective yeah. from what you know. So, so back... 70s, 60s, Chino was nothing but a city full of orange groves. That's all it was, just orange groves. Well, back then, there was no, there was no com- community, there was no homes, there was no residential areas. So the state chose Chino to be a place to build state prisons. So they ended up building a maximum security prison, a minimum security prison, and then what they call a California Rehabilitation Center which was designed for drug use and alcohol abuse and all that other stuff. Well, what happened over a period of 20, 30 years, the community of Chino built themselves around the prison. So now you have pretty much a a growing, thriving community of people that really infiltrated where the prisons originally started. Hmm. And uh, it's kind of an interesting, interesting dynamic. Right. And, um, Everything was fine up until 19, uh, it was just before I went there, 1983, there was a famous case, um, I'm sure well before your time, there's a famous case where uh, a black guy named Kevin Cooper escaped from the Chino prison. And he escaped from the prison and he went off into the Chino Hills community, which is right next door to Chino, literally on the border. And he killed um, a, a couple that were both uh, very uh, predominant uh, chiropractors in the community. Killed them. Both of them killed one of their children, a daughter. Uh, killed a neighbor boy that was spending the night with them. Oh, geez. And shot a son. So there was actually five people. The son ended up living. He thought he killed the son, but he, he ended up living. And then um, he shot those people and then he went up north to like the Monterey Bay area and later ended up getting arrested up there after he raped a woman up in in the Monterey Bay area. That changed the whole prison community. There was no longer after that time any such thing as uh, as a minimum security prison in the state of California. It elevated everything to maximum security. Hmm. They came to the department. They came. The, the the heads of the superintendent of the prisons came to our briefings, like in our department, and said, "By governor's order, you now have a shoot to kill authority on an escapee. Oh, wow. Somebody escapes the prison. If you see him, you take him out." And it was all based off of this Kevin Cooper, and that really began to change the dynamics. Uh, and then when everything went maximum security, believe it or not the people in the community of Chino actually began to feel a lot safer. And because of max? Because of maximum security huh. and because they didn't feel like people, because escaping prior to that, I wouldn't say it was common, but it wasn't like, oh my you know, gosh, somebody escaped and this is you know headline news. Okay, somebody escaped from the Chino prison, whatever. But when Kevin Cooper escaped and went and killed that family, 
that changed the whole landscape. Huh. And uh, so, how did he escape? Uh, he scaled the fence, scaled the fence, cut himself all up, and, and all that. But he scaled the fence. Wow. And that, was that was that out of a minimum security? Uh, yes. Okay. He and was actually everybody... being he was in the process of being transferred from minimum security to an up north like San uh-huh. Quentin or Folsom, one of the up north. He was in a, kind of in a transfer status. There was a big investigation that took place. They had guard towers mm-hmm. uh, on, the, on the fence line. and they Did went, everybody just turn their backs? They or were asleep. <laughs> they were asleep. Oh, but, no. Yeah, the guards up in the towers were asleep when this guy escaped. It was a huge investigation. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, people lost their jobs. Superintendent lost his job. It was it was a huge, huge issue. Because there's a big debate right now between, like, like, why prisons are privatized. Yes. Like, why that's such a terrible idea. Yeah. What do you know about that? I don't. I really don't because that's really all of that came after my law enforcement career. Um, you know, if you talk to the bureaucrats, they'll say you can't privatize it. You know, we have to we have to control it. I, honestly, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the. I think sometimes anything's better than what we have. Mm. You know, wow. you know. How did Epstein kill himself in a prison? You know. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I think people want to believe in the best that we have these great systems. Right. Which I think the original systems that were created, like the intention was great behind right. it. Um, not necessarily saying all like like a medical system, the prison system, all these things. Right. The, the origin of them are great, but it's turned into something quite different. Exactly. And I think if, if you keep like not paying attention to some of these things that are happening, like it doesn't make sense. Right. Like don't just try and talk yourself right. out of it. And that's right. happened plenty of times in my short career as an EMT. Like I, I would talk myself out of trying to help somebody like, okay, that person had a cardiac rhythm change. Oh no, they didn't. I'm just, I'm just second guessing it. Right. And then later on die because they had a heart rhythm change. And that's kind of the intuition, that gut feeling like something's wrong. Right. (laughs) And we always try and talk ourselves out of it. And I think the public a lot of times wants to talk themselves out of it because they just can't wrap their minds around that our, that systems could be so corrupt. That's right. And I do think that Countrywide, and again, I don't, I don't know that I can speak for the prisons, but bigger picture, I think people are really starting to look at government with a suspicious eye. You know, you people really haven't done that great of a job, and there's been a lot of mishaps and a lot of mistakes. Maybe the private sector can do it better. You know, yes. and I think that maybe that might be how they're looking at the prison system, that maybe all of these government employees, these correction officers, you know, maybe if we privatized it, we could do a better job. Well, isn't that... Like, isn't that the debate right now? Like that systems shouldn't, like prison systems shouldn't be privatized? It's all over the board, I think. I think it's all over the board. But I think the bigger, the bigger uh, drive is yes, that they shouldn't be privatized. You turn over to private people, it's going to get a lot worse. And there's a lot of of just stats that come out on these crazy incarcerations that make no sense whatsoever. Exactly. Have you run into anything like that as a car? Like you, you arrest somebody and it's really not that big of a deal, but it turns into a big deal and they get life. Yeah, politics. Yeah, politics. It's who you know, you know, who you don't know. Explain some of that. Well, like your personal experience. Yeah, be, because I saw, you know, people who were friends of the district attorney were prosecuted different than Joe Blow off the street. That there was, you know, a greater level of prosecution or somebody who knew the judge or knew the judge's wife, you know, that type of stuff. That stuff happens all the time. You know, the chief of police, you know, that type of stuff. I mean, I, I just think that, and, and again, I, I honestly think in today's age, I think we've come a long way because of the media is scrutinizing things a lot closer than they did. It goes back to your comment earlier about the good old boys system, mm-hmm. right? And if the good old boys, the judge and- And the jury. Know, and the jury. 
uh, and the district attorney or, or the police chief. I mean, listen, back in my day, you know, um, you know, the police chief's family members or the police chief's next door neighbors got hired and got promoted mm-hmm. long before anybody else, the people who worked the hardest for it. Mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of that has changed. It's still there. I think it'll probably always be there. But I think a lot of it has, has changed because I think the media and, you know, there's a lot more lawsuits, a lot more litigation, you know, that type of stuff. But it's, it's, it's real. Yeah, it's interesting because I had a, a guest on. Her name is Naomi. Um, Naomi Elena. She's the like assistant researcher and assistant professor at the new TCU Medical School. Um, super awesome lady. Uh, but she's talking about how that concept is kind of like the old guard. Because um, my issue with research right now, because research is how we move forward in medicine. I was on the pre-med route. I was, I was just got burned out because I realized there's just a lot of just like just effed up stuff of the medical sure. system that really frustrated me. Um, so I realized, okay, to fix these things, I need to do research. And I started getting into research and started realizing a lot of the research that is coming out and moving these policies is part of that old, good old boy system. Mm-hmm. And she, she notices that too. Like the whole, it's funny. Cause like if you have a conflict of interest within, within research, you have to throw out the entire study and that all uh, originated during the Nuremberg trials um, at post World War II. It's like it was all about human rights and the ethics mm-hmm. of it. Um, she was talking about how she she noticed that too, but that system is slowly phasing out because these these people who are you know high up in all these huge research companies, um, they're kind of older. They're used to doing it kind of I you know I scratch your back, you you scratch mine, sure. and they've pushed a lot of these studies through that are really like have these massive conflict of conflicts of interest sure. it's almost like the conflicts of interest don't apply to the guys at the top right. but if i as a researcher have any type of like say the wrong word you have to throw the entire research study out right. and that was something i got trained on at the hospital where you say if you say this one thing or if you have this amount of incentive in how you say it you can't even do the research study right. that participant can't even be right. applied to the study right so it's the old guard is right. kind of how she explained it. So I wonder if that's also happening within law enforcement. It, it, I think it, I know for a fact that it's happened over the years. I've seen it happen, but I do, I really do believe that that is old school. And I think that we're changing. I think that again, media old attention, guard. old guard, yeah. uh, litigation. Um, I would hope that there's a sense of, a better sense of ethics involved today with law enforcement officials or fire department officials or wherever, where it's like, you know what, we're going to do the right thing. You know, we're going to do the, do the right thing first instead of taking care of the good old boy type mm-hmm. thing. Uh, because people have gotten burnt. I mean, yeah. police chiefs have been fired, prosecuted, you know, sent to prison for, you know, all kinds of favoritism and manipulating budgets and money and all that type of stuff. So I, I do think that, um, I do think it's the old guard. I really do. And I'm kind of cynical about a lot. And, uh, I used to not be that way, but I wonder, and kind of my, one of my fears is, is as the old guard is quote unquote being phased out, if mm-hmm. that's actually creating a power vacuum, you know, like why we don't topple certain government regimes because it's just going to fulfill a vacuum like ISIS and sure. um, everything we have to deal with, with terrorism. Um, the whole issue with Gaddafi and all that, it would created a vacuum right. for ISIS to really take a, a hold. Sure. So I wonder if a lot of these people who are, um, getting taken out by whoever right. is only creating a power vacuum for somebody better in a bad way yep. to come and fill that void. Well, I think you could make the same uh, equivalent to how you just described ISIS and Qaddafi and all that. 
to modern police departments and Black Lives Matter and Antifa and all of that, where maybe the new guard, if you go to the new guard, and by the way, I think it's completely generational, right? Changing from baby boomers to generation X and generation Y and all this other stuff. What, why generational? Uh, because I think that the, the attitudinal, you know, baby boomers, baby boomers, my generation felt that you had to work for everything that you get. You work hard for everything you get. New generations, Generation X, Generation Y, the Metro generation, they're entitled to everything. Well, who's created that? Well, government has said we should give you free college. We should give you free yeah. medical insurance. We should give you basically free everything. The government should support you. The government should give you money. I think it creates that sense of entitlement. And those are the that generation of people is now the up-and-comers who are now running police departments. And then when you have somebody come in and say, well, you know, we should defund the police department and we should put psychologists out to deal with all of societal's problems, you have some police officials that are willing to just sit back and go, okay. Are you talking about like psychologists going on calls? Oh, yeah. That's what they're talking about. They're talking about instead of sending police officers to domestic violence calls, let's send a therapist or let's send a psychologist to solve your problem. How do you feel about that? Well, I think that's all great and dandy when the psychologist walks in and the man's with a knife getting ready to kill his wife and he's going to kill the first person to the door. I just, you know, I don't know what psychology class is going to teach that psychologist to not get stabbed in the gut. Yeah. It happens to police officers daily. Because even I've been on a lot of those domestic abuse calls as well. And they're some of the most dangerous, if not the most dangerous. It is. For for years, and it probably still is statistically, the most dangerous call for for a police officer or an EMT or a paramedic to go on because people are just completely irrational. And oftentimes drugs are involved, alcohol is involved, certainly emotions are involved. Yeah. And, uh, you know, could a therapist, I mean, I can remember riding, you know, working as a police officer, some domestic violence calls, and I would have a police chaplain, you know, riding along with me. And and he was a great asset after people put down the weapons, after people settled down, after people took a deep breath, after everybody was calm, the chaplain could come in and probably communicate better than even I could, you know, because he comes from a different... you're not going to send that police chaplain in the door when people are throwing knives and, you know, like I said, you know, yeah. alcohol is involved <laughs> and all that other stuff. So, so you kind of, um, you kind of worked your way up in Chino, am I right? I did. So um, I fulfilled my dream of riding motorcycles. I was there about four <laughs> years and I got an assignment to ride a motorcycle. Absolutely loved it. Did it for about five Five years straight, loved every second of it, didn't want to come off. The only reason I did come off is because I promoted. And uh, we had a policy that said once you promote to the next rank, you have to go back to patrol, go back to where you started. So I went back to patrol for a year, became an investigator, this, that, and the other thing. And then ultimately, uh, throughout the years, I promoted to sergeant. Uh, I went back to school again. I was just having a conversation with my nephew about this, trying to encourage him to get to school. Um, I went back to school, got my bachelor's degree, got my master's degree. In what? Uh, I got my bachelor's in business management and I got my master's in organizational management because my goal was to run the department. So I wasn't going to get a degree in law. I've been studying law for the past 20 years. Yeah. Right? (laughs) You know, literally on the street, you know, or working with the district attorney, being an investigator. I didn't need to go get a degree in law. 
what I need to get a degree in and what I ultimately got a degree in was human resources, budgeting, business ethics, those types of things to go actually run a big organization. And how old are you when you got your master's? 38. That's awesome. Yeah, 38 years old. Yeah, and, and, and again, I was just talking to Gabe, you know, struggling with raising a family, working full time. I mean, I did it backwards, you know, because, because I had a lot on my plate. So I got my degree. Ultimately, um, I got promoted to lieutenant, and uh, which is a command officer in the organization, third in chain of command of the organization, got promoted lieutenant. Um, took over a SWAT team, and I became a SWAT team commander for, oh. for our city. Ran, ran, How was that? That was awesome. It was awesome. Yeah, yeah I ran a SWAT team for about 10 years. Uh, actually ran the SWAT team all the way up until I, I retired. And uh, it was a part-time team. Chino wasn't big enough to have a full-time That's team. That's what I was about to ask. No, it was, it was yeah. part-time. It was a part-time assignment, uh, what they call an ancillary assignment. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I bounced around from watch commander to uh, an administrative lieutenant to an investigations lieutenant. I worked multitude, but the SWAT team followed me to all of those assignments okay. because it was a specialty, and it was part-time. Yeah. And um, what probably, I was just telling Rick, um, I think the highlight of my career, I'd say the highlight of my life, but my wife would get very upset, <laughs> and my daughters. I'll cut it out. <laughs> the highlight of my career was going as, in 2000, in 2000, I was a fairly newly promoted lieutenant, and uh, I got selected by, believe it or not, by the United States State Department to go to the National FBI Academy. And the, F- huh. the National FBI Academy, was it's held at Quantico, Virginia, with the basic FBI Academy, but what they did is they selected law enforcement officials from all over the world, and that's why it was the State Department, all over the world, they selected 250 people to go to the National oh FBI gosh. Academy. So you were one of 250 <clears throat> people. Correct. Uh, and, and this was just one class. They held two classes a year. So it was about 500 people a year got selected. Uh, of what, 8 billion? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who knows? Hey, what's world. that stat, Rick? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. 500 of 8 billion. Yeah. What's that percentage? 8 billion. 8 billion. <laughs> it's very small. <laughs> yeah. No parlor tricks today. <laughs> yeah. So I went to Quantico, Virginia. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> went to Quantico for three months. And uh, it was, there, there's a difference between, I, I didn't know this, uh, hmm? what the Quantico they sent you to and basic Quantico? No. So basic, so the basic FBI academy, if you become an FBI agent, entry level FBI, yeah. you go to Quantico. Okay. And the National FBI Academy is held at the same place. Okay. It's still at the base academy in Quantico, the Quantico Marine Corps base okay. is where it's held. Uh, but it's two different it's two different animals. Yeah. You know, you have the base academy. These are all law enforcement. You have to be a lieutenant or better uh, to go to the okay. National FBI Academy. And uh, all leadership classes, uh, forensic science. Mm. Um, that's getting that's taken off recently. Like yeah. forensic nursing, that's yeah. a huge thing that's yeah. happening right now. Forensic psychology yes. and law enforcement is huge. I just had a forensic nurse on the podcast, and she talks about a lot. That that's her passion. Yeah. Uh, super interesting things. But anyways, continue. Yeah, awesome. So I spent three months there. I th- three months in Quantico. It was one of the most awesome experiences of my life. Just huh. meeting people. My roommate was the chief of the independent corruption unit in Hong Kong. What? Yeah. And that's that's his responsibility, and it, you know, so was, how does that? What 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 do you even do with that position? So his job was to investigate in Hong Kong corrupt politicians, oh corrupt movie stars. He said that the tough the toughest case that he ever worked, 
he equated it or he made an, a, a, an equivalency in the United States to Britney Spears. That's what he told me. He said the Britney Spears of Hong Kong, who, whatever this girl's name was, like the number one superstar in Hong Kong, and she was corrupt and she was dealing with government monies and drugs and this and everything, and he ended up taking her down. Oh, my his, his unit did. Not him personally, but his yeah. unit. And he goes, it was just... A nightmare because she was so popular but that's what his unit did that's what the independent corruption council did now is that kind of like uh almost a farce in hong kong with we're gonna give you this position right. to investigate quote-unquote corruption we'll throw you a bone every once in a while right. is that how it is that you know of or is it actual like he's actually doing good things <laughs> um he he indicated he was very careful chose okay. his words very carefully but if you read between the lines, it was more of smoke and mirrors. Yeah. His, 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 That's interesting. His independent corruption council uh-huh. was more smoke and mirrors by the government to make it look like that they were addressing corruption issues. Yeah. Because he said after all that work that basically this girl walked, you know, in essence, she pretty much walked away from it because oh she gosh. was so popular. Yeah. You know, and the government wanted to protect her. Now, did she get popular through those type of channels, or was she actually like good at what she did? No, she apparently she was a terrific singer and entertainer. She was like a Britney Spears yeah. type person during that era. Yeah. So, wow, but anyway, crazy. I mean, he was my roommate, but but I met again two hundred and forty nine other people from all over the world, including the United States. They selected um, about four or five from each state across the United States. Every state was represented. Not necessarily with four or five, but every state was represented. Uh, we had state troopers there from Alaska, you know, and people from Hawaii. But then, you know, countries all over the world wow. that went to this. And it was just, we uh, we took tours of the White House. We took tours of... Um, so you were one of like three or four from California? I think there were four, maybe five. And by pure coincidence, one of the guys that I ended up at the FBI Academy with showed today was a guy that I worked with as a partner at Laverne PD. What? Yeah, back in the early 1980s, he's a, he's a newly promoted lieutenant, and they sent him in. We walked, was like, oh my, you know, Jim, I haven't seen you in 20 years. And wow. I, yeah, it was small world. Crazy. So this is what, late 90s? This was uh, 2000. So, yeah, okay. It was in 2000. Yeah. So talk about a little bit what was going around in the country, because that's you know, right before the September 11th attack, right. a, a year, right. roughly. yeah. Where it, nobody's talking to each other, yeah. the FBI's not talking to the CIA, no. CIA's not going to the FBI. Yeah. How did you guys have to deal with any of that? No, no. I think everybody had their head in the sand. The world was peaceful. It was yeah. quiet. You know, Bill Clinton was leaving office, and George Bush was coming in, and the world was peaceful, and it was no big deal, and nobody ever talked about it. And frankly, I think a lot of people, including law enforcement, had their head buried in the sand. And then 9/11 hit. Uh, 9-11, yeah, it was, I, I just don't, I mean, nobody talked about it. Yeah. It, was, it wasn't that big of a deal. So what else do you do in the, the, the FBI Academy? Um, a lot of classes, a lot of physical fitness, um, about um, 50 pounds ago. Um, did a lot of running. I actually kept a, a running journal. I was I was actually a big avid runner. I was running half marathons at home before that, and I, and I kept a journal. I ran 187 miles while I was at the FBI Academy for three months. I mean, don't ask me why. I I, journal, I actually journaled it. Vo- voluntarily? Uh, yeah. Uh, vol- right. Well, it's, no, some of it was mandatory. I hear serial killers are like that. Say that again? I heard serial killers are kind of like yes. that. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's you're only off by like five miles. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Wait, are y'all cold, by the way? That was are y'all my, comfortable? No, I'm good. You that, good? That was my goal. 
No. I'm Too busy, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> did, you get, did you get your head hit as a child? Yes. Yeah. yeah Concussion. Well, yeah, you met my brother. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. Continue. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, a lot of physical fitness are really big on physical. We had physical fitness every day. We were in a gym and then we ran. Uh, again, all these classes, law classes, ethics classes. And all the classes were, were um, supported by the University of West Virginia, uh, either undergraduate or graduate, depending on what what you personally had. And since I already had my master's or if I had my master's work on my master's, that all of my classes were, were um, uh, graduate level classes. Okay. And, um, and, you know, again, they had all kinds of, you know, other things for us to go do. We toured all over Washington, DC. So what was the purpose of all this? Leadership, leadership training. Okay. Yeah. That was the whole goal. It was prestigious, yeah. right? They had a big, big graduation at the end, and the director of the FBI, you know, personally handed you your certificate and, and all of that. Who was the director at that time? Um, good question. Was it the was, same guy who was? It was uh, just before Mueller, and I don't remember his name. Yeah, it wasn't free, uh, freeze, or it was just before Mueller. I don't remember yeah. who it was. And was he? Because how does how does a director usually get? Elect, they're not elected. Appointed by the appointed. president. Appointed by okay. the president. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. was he? Was that the same director that uh, was acting director during the 2001 11th attacks? Yes. Okay. Yes. And he, I'm sure he soon left after that. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. So um. So three so, months of that. Yeah. So I went back. Then I went back to my day job, and like I said, as I, a lieutenant, right? As a lieutenant, I finished out my career. I left in 2010 uh, as a lieutenant. And, uh, Why'd you leave? Um, <clears throat> my boss and I didn't see eye to eye. Uh, my boss was one of the good old boys. And, so uh, Rick's over here smiling. So uh, he knows the whole story. Tell the whole story. Uh, well, it's it's just it's it, it's. I think it would be boring. It just the the guy. So so. I was lieutenant. The next step up was police captain, and that's one step from the police chief. And my goal was always to be a police chief. Well, the guy who was the sitting police chief um, tested, they had a captain's position and tested for a police captain. And, you know, without bragging, just saying factually, I was on paper, without a doubt, hands above by having, I was the only candidate that had a master's degree. I was the only candidate that completed the FBI Academy. I had been a lieutenant for 10 years. I had the SWAT team, which was, a big deal. The SWAT team was unblemished. I didn't have any bad shoots or kill innocent people, none of that type. I mean, by all rights, at least on paper, I mean, some people would argue, but on paper, I was a stellar candidate. And um, when they when they promoted, when the chief promoted the police captain, he promoted his neighbor two doors down. Who, oh, gosh. Who buddies who grew up together, were in the military together, and uh, the guy had a high school diploma, literally. That was his education, was a high school diploma. And he had been a lieutenant for three, maybe four years. In what department? At Chino. At Chino. Yeah, it was all in Chino. It was all in-house. And we were all, I mean, the other lieutenant and I were friends. Yeah. You know, they got promoted. It wasn't his issue. But I just lost all trust, all confidence. I lost all faith in, in this police chief, and he was going to be there for a long time. I was in an age and a place where I could retire. And walk away. So yeah. ultimately, that's yeah, uh, yeah. The chief and I had some words. Yeah, you know, I flat out told him. I thought, you know, and here's a guy who claimed, you know, his big thing. He you know, claimed to be this 
strong Christian guy and, you know, would, would preach mm-hmm. every chance he got and, you know, made no, which was fine, made no bones about the fact that he was a God-fearing man and all this other stuff. And he played right into the good old, and it was what he, with my opinion, what he did was completely unethical and nobody could stop him. Wow. And I lost all faith in him. I lost faith in him. I lost faith overall in the department because I knew this was how the department was going to be run for the next five or six years. Hmm. And I was done. I was just, you know, it was time to go. And, and you know, I wasn't, I wasn't happy about it at the time. I was upset. Um, and I knew I was going to miss the job. But I knew that it was time time for me to go. And, you know, in, in life expectancy after a full police career is, you know, it's to, statistically is less than five years because you beat yourself up mm-hmm. in a 30-year career. Heart, yeah. heart disease, high blood pressure, hypertension, which is all family history for us. Yeah. And uh, I just, you know, it was time. It was time to leave. And, and I did. And I, after I told the chief off, I, I left. The, and, uh, in today's world, there's a whole lot of just, a lot of departments coming out saying all these massive issues are, are occurring, corruption, mm-hmm. um, a lot of good old boy, old guard mm-hmm. type things. Mm-hmm. Um, you're talking about how there's there's a lot of old guard. There was a lot of old guard during that time. Right. Um, did you ever run into like situations where there's outright corruption, where they asked you to do something crazy, or that you just really didn't feel like was good? Uh, on a very very minor scale, very minor scale. Things like I'll give you one example. When I was a young, I was a motor cop, young whippersnapper cop. Um, I stopped a, a guy. I didn't. I didn't know who he was. I, I remember the guy's name. In fact, he's probably dead now. So his name is Kevin Sullivan. I had no idea who this guy was. I stopped him. He was drunk. He was sixty, probably sixty-five years old at the time. Older guy. He was drunk. I arrested him for drunk driving. And um, you know, the first thing he did was, you know, uh, he literally handed me the police chief's card. <laughs> it was the chief that hired me at Chino. Oh, wow. Yeah, Jim Anthony. He hired me. Hand me his card. Said. He's my good friend. I want you to call him. Well, I'm not calling him. <laughs> it's like one o'clock in the morning. Uh, I'm not calling him. I have no business. So I ended up taking this guy to jail, and and he, and he got his phone call from jail. He called oh, the chief, chief, and here he, I had no idea who he was talking. I'm filling out paperwork, and we took a blood a sample for his blood alcohol level. We're doing all this paperwork, and all of a sudden, this Kevin Sullivan, who I really don't know, other than the fact I just arrested him, says, "Hey, phone's for you." Uh, no, I'm not talking to anybody. Uh, it's your chief, and he wants to talk to you. And and I picked up the phone, and it was my chief. And, you know, he basically, without coming out and telling me what I had to do, uh, and he never did, he said, Russ, I really want you to reconsider this. And he's, a, he's the president of Rotary, and he's on the Community Services Commission, and he's going to run for city council. In other words, he's a, he's a community muckety-muck. Uh, and I would really like you to reconsider whether or not this is necessary. And it was kind of one of those things where it was a split second decision for me. And uh, I, I said to the chief at the time, you know what, chief, I'll, I'll consider what you're telling me. And I hung up the phone and it was literally probably 30 seconds. I was like, you know what, I'm doing the right thing. And this guy deserved to go to jail. How do I back out of this? I've come this far. I'm literally sitting in a, in a jail uh, uh, receiving room, you know. What am I going to do? Just turn around and say, okay, forget it. I'm mm-hmm. just kidding. This guy's really not drunk. And I, I just said, I'm going to go with it. And, you know, I got called into the chief's office later and he asked me if I was going to submit to the case of the district attorney. And I said, yeah, I'm not a fact chief. I already have because I anticipated that was coming. So I said, yeah, chief, I already submitted it to the district attorney. 
And uh, he gave me a lecture about that if, if I was in his shoes, in other words, someday if you ever get to here, you're going to need to really, you know, uh, use discretion about how we treat prominent members of the community. I respectfully listened to him and I said, yes, sir, no, sir, walked out the door and, you know, that it was the end of it. Wow. But, you know, you talk about, you know, me being a young cop, I was probably, you know, 28, 29 years old, been at that department maybe five years, you know, and I'm sitting in the chief's office, which is a big deal back then. And I'm literally like, you know, what do I do? And it was a very intimidating place for me to be in. Is that a big deal? No, it's not a big deal. Is there was there police corruption that went on in, in, that I read about, and I knew about, and other you know heard about in other agencies? I never saw anything like that in my career. I never saw any big, you know that to me that's minor, and it, it faded, yeah. that faded away. That chief actually later promoted me before he left. So Is there, was there a lot of like because uh, I, mean, I would I would I would consider if you, like if I was on the on the police force I would consider you like okay you're a good cop. Yeah. There's good cops and there's bad cops. Right. And the bad cops are the ones who have given a lot of people these bad names. Right. Um, if you're a bad cop, I know that you're a good cop. So I'm not going to tell you right. anything. I'm not going to tell you Jack. Right. So was there a lot of that where it could be there? There could have been like a whole lot of just stuff that you had no idea. No. be honest with you, I believe, and I saw bad cops. I worked with bad cops. And um, honestly, they stuck out like a sore thumb. They weren't very smart about what they were doing. They were almost brazen, almost uh, braggadocious about what they were doing. Huh. And you know what? They got found out. They got found out. I worked with a, I worked with a, a guy who was a fellow motor officer who a lot of us just always looked at this guy with a suspicious eye. There was just something about this guy that was, was wrong. It just, something about him didn't fit. He just didn't fit the mold of, you know, I guess that's probably profiling and stereotyping, but <laughs> there was just something about him and all of us. So we talked about it. Man, what, you know, what's this guy, what's this guy's get? And, um, <clears throat> I had a, uh, I was a motor officer. I had no rank at all as a motor officer, but we had young cadets that worked for us, which were, you know, they washed our police cars and they went yeah. and got our lunch, you know, when the boss wasn't <laughs> looking. And, you know, they basically did a lot. Of, I mean, yeah. they literally did, work. Yeah, they emptied trash cans in the, in the, in the office. Donuts. Donuts. Oh, man, that's wrong, dude. <laughs> dude, I was a cop of the 21st century. I got bagels, okay? Bagels, huh? Bagels. Yeah, exactly. I don't I think so, man. That's with the donut stuff. <laughs> So, I mean, look, you're, you're health conscious, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You can tell. <laughs> um, but, you know, they were great people. And, and the neat part about our cadets were they were our future police officers. And we literally watched them grow up. In fact, yeah. in fact, one of my cadets at the time, Karen Comstock, just retired in July as, as a police chief. Huh. And she worked for me when I was a supervisor. That's she cool. worked for me as a cadet. And she went all the way up through. There was the first female police officer ever in the history of Chino PD. Oh, wow. And so, I mean, there's a lot of rewards. But anyway, so one day this cadet um, comes into me and she's, she's you know, teared up and she's, she's you know, trying to get, and I, you know, like, what happened? What's going on? We end up, and she, we go into a conference room and sit down and she tells me that this police officer that all of us are looking at a suspicious eye that he walked up, put his arm around her and reached over and grabbed her breast oh, wow. as, as he did. And it basically said, you know, uh, you know, something like, you know, we need to hook up or we need to go. I, I don't remember what the whole deal was, but he basically sexually assaulted mm -hmm. her. And this was a classic example of the cadet saying to me, I don't want to do anything about it. I don't want to file charges. I don't want a complaint. I don't want, I just have to tell somebody and I trust you. And you're the person I wanted to tell, 
And I just know that I'm going to feel better when I tell somebody. So when we walk out of here, it's over with. And I looked her right square in the eye and said, it's not over with. This guy's a dirty cop. What he did is a crime. And, you know, I'm telling you right now, Elaine, that that this is going to be investigated and da 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 And long story short, he got criminally prosecuted for sexual assault. He lost his job. He went to jail for a short period of yeah. time. It wasn't wasn't the crime of the century, but but we didn't put up with that. I, I honestly believe back then, and I still believe that it probably happens today that the police police the police. I really believe that. We didn't tolerate dirty cops, and dirty cops weren't very smart, you yeah. know, and they got caught. I can, I can remember uh, we had a police lieutenant one time that found out that there was some specialty Cuban cigars that got booked into evidence. And he used his authority as a lieutenant to go down and tell the property clerk to release the cigars because he was a cigar smoker. Mm. He lost his job. He lost his job. He got fired. He got prosecuted, lost his retirement, lost mm. his pension. I mean, yeah, you know, it, you know. Cop, if there's anything that cops hate more is dirty cops. You know, we expect bad guys. We expect dirty human beings. We expect dirt bags. Yeah. We, we that's kind of what we live for. Yeah. We don't we don't like dirty cops, and dirty cops got found out. Well, that's just not a normal mindset. No. And even it's to, not. especially today. Yeah. You know, you it, see one cop do bad things. Right. It's, you're, you're, like your old apartment is. And we always sit back and wonder how did this person get through the cracks. You know, you always second guess, yourself, how did this person get here? How did this person get in this? But you know what? Doctors, airline pilots. It's everywhere. EMTs, yeah. you know, school administrators, yeah. you know. It's everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. We really were just talking about uh, a few friends last night about like the more you have worked towards something, the more leverage somebody has against you. Right. Like a lot of doctors, I'm not saying, I don't know any doctors like this, but you know, that's kind of where they get into some tough territory because right. if, if you don't follow the, the mindset on a lot of these things you right. have your medical license that could be revoked right um that's kind of my issue with right. a, lot, a lot of like how we treat diseases yeah. um if you don't follow the the, yeah. the mindset the the course sure you're not going to be right. really be able to practice you know one of the problems with police officers always been and, and i was victim to this as well is that you know you give us a badge you give us a gun you give us the authority to take people's rights away I can take your freedom away in a heartbeat. And I mean, that's huge. And the problem with cops is, it's like, yeah. you know, and it, 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 I was the same way, right? They teach us, they teach, they taught us in the police academy. You are the only person in the state of California that has the authority to commit justifiable homicide other than the governor, because the governor can sign execution orders. You have the authority to commit justifiable homicide. So how do you kind of, process that though because like that that question is actually a question i was going to ask you like yeah. when you get to these positions of power whether you're mayor governor president whatever it is yeah. the only course is to get a big head yeah because we're human so yeah. how do you kind of fight that to realize like power is just just could be very corrupt you know i think i think it's maturity because as a young cop i could I, I could see where that could have gotten me into a whole lot of trouble right but i also think your family your friends the people that you choose to hang out with kind of keep you in check that, you know what, Russ, guess what? You put your pants on the same way I do. You bleed the same way I do. Right. I can punch you in the face just as fast as I'm I sure. Can. I'm sure your brother Rick yeah, over here exactly. reminds you, know, you of that. <laughs> and, you know, it, 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 it's something you got to guard against. And it's something that, that I can even admit in my own career at times got out of control. 
So it's where the communities are in. Yes. Yeah. Do you think that that should be almost a requirement for cops to have healthy communities? Yeah. Well, I think it's, I think that's an impossible task. I know, but if it wasn't impossible. Well, if it wasn't impossible, I think that's an idea. I mean, yeah. I mean, if you could be a cop in Disneyland, that'd be great. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Um, Mm -hmm. So, okay. So you, you retired. um, So I retired and as I'm, as I'm, well, in in the backup in, in uh, 1992, um, I actually went and got my, well, actually I started in 92, 93. I got my pilot's license, uh, became a private pilot. And that's kind of a, side story in itself. I don't know if you're interested in how that, that how that came about. Why but, not? Come on. Um, so I went through I went through a divorce uh, from my first wife. I had two very young kids. As a matter of fact, my wife left me when my youngest daughter was six months old. Worst, darkest time of my life. I mean, terrible, terrible time. I didn't want the divorce. I didn't want the separation. I certainly didn't want to lose my kids. Um, and I didn't lose my kids. But at the time, I'm yeah. thinking, I'm losing everything, right? Um, I was a cop who was in control of everything, right? I had a badge. I had a gun. Mm-hmm. I told people to jump. They asked how high. They jumped. I was happy. And for the first time that I could remember in my adult life, I was had something I couldn't control. My wife was leaving. She was taking my kids. And I couldn't stop it. There was no badge. There was no gun. There was no authority. There was no anything that could stop me from doing it. I mean... You know, I, I prayed harder than I ever prayed in my life, and my wife was leaving me. Very, very dark time. And um, this went on for several years, and like three to four years. And at some point, um, I actually went and saw my personal doctor, who had been kind of a family friend. We were kind of on a first-name basis. And I walked in and I said, Doc, I'm just not feeling good. I just, I'm just, I don't know what's going on. I just, you know, seem lightheaded. I'm out of it. This we ended up talking in his office, like in his personal office. And he said, Russ, tell me about your lifestyle. Well, you know, I work, you know, I work. Well, what else do you do? Well, when I have the kids, I'm with the kids. Okay, when you're not with the kids, what are you doing? I work. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, when you're not working and you're not with the kids, what do you do? I don't do anything. I work. I'm either with the kids and I work, or I'm either with the kids or I'm at work. There's no in-between. So we had this long conversation, and basically what he said was, is, Russ, you need to find a hobby you got to get away from the job. you got to get away from police work because you're burying your emotions and your, your trauma over the divorce. You're mm-hmm. burying that in your career, in your job, which is great for your career, but you're going to kill yourself. You're going to find somebody you, else. Yeah, they're going to find you dead yeah. in your, your office one of these days, right? Or, or Exactly. You're going to go out and do something stupid. And then what happens when you lose your career? Now what, right? So I walked away from that going, my doctor's a jerk. He's <laughs> he doesn't know any idea what he's talking about. Yeah. Because he could have just written me a prescription and I would have been better. I would have fixed everything. But, you know, he didn't. He didn't give me a magic pill. So my life still sucks. Yeah. So I go to work that night. Literally, same day I saw the doctor at work that night. And I show up on a burglar alarm call with a partner that I worked with for about five years. We, we, we didn't ride together. We were in separate cars. We show up to this warehouse. False alarm. We're standing out talking after the false alarm. We're talking and he goes, man, I'm exhausted tonight. This, that, and everything. He goes, I got up early this morning I go you know you know just idle conversation yeah so what'd you get up so early for and he kind of looks around and he said well I had a lesson this morning what do you mean you had a lesson he goes well the department doesn't know it because I moonlight but I'm a flight instructor and I had a lesson with a student this morning so I go really man he goes hey don't tell nobody I might tell nobody and we talked and this I mean hey flying there that's cool you know hey you know how long you been and we had this conversation right so I drive away, and I drive away, and I'm going, 
wait a minute, doctor said hobby. This guy's uh-huh. a flight instructor. Hmm, maybe, and I literally, I remember like almost saying this out loud to nobody else in the Maybe God does know what he's talking about, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, this, and so I remember meeting up with Jeff in the next couple of days and saying, hey, I want to take flight lessons. Nah, man, no, nah, you don't, you know, you know. Was it the first time it occurred to you to yeah. fly? Oh, yeah. I never thought about it. We had a uh, we had an uncle uh, that took me up for my first plane ride when I was like 14 years old because I got a good report card and he later killed himself in the same airplane. Oh, no. And I really, I mean, I really had, I'd never been in a small airplane ever uh-huh. again. And I just really, never, but to me, it was like, wow, this is something really cool. This yeah. could be something cool. So Jeff, so finally I talked Jeff into, you know, really seriously, I want to, I want to take a flight lesson. And I, and I think I might've shared the story with him. I think I might've told him, Hey, my doctor said I need a hobby. So, you know, this is it. So Jeff says, meet me at Corona airport. Corona, California. Meet me at Corona Airport at 8 o'clock on Friday morning. We'll go up for a lesson. We'll see if you like it. Okay, cool. So I go down to Corona Airport at 8 o'clock in the morning on Friday, and there's no Jeff. He don't show up. Well, we don't have cell phones. You know, we don't. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I waited around for an hour, hour and a half. I finally went home. Well, the next time I saw Jeff, I said, hey, dude, you had your ass kicked lately? <laughs> no. I said, well, you're about to. Oh man, I'm sorry. You know, I slept in on one excuse after another. Later that shift, I run into another partner of mine on another call, who, by the way, happens to be named Russ. And so, what's the first thing I tell Russ? I tell him what a jerk Jeff is. (laughs) You'll never believe what this idiot did to me. You know, and I, and um, he, he, um, you know, supposed to meet me, didn't show up. I wasted all his time. So Russ says to Russ. Says, I got a neighbor across the street who's about your age, who's a flight instructor. That's all he does full time. Why don't I have him call you? And I remember saying, that guy's probably a jerk too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whatever. Give him my number. I don't care. Well, sure enough, a couple days later, my phone my phone rings. And this guy, hey, you know, this is Bob. I'm a friend of Russ's. He said, you might be interested in flight instruction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I might. I just want to go up and check it out. I swear to God, this is the honest God truth. He says to me, Meet me at Corona Airport at 8 o'clock on Friday morning. I go, you guys all read the same book or what? I said, you got to be kidding me. You know? So I did. And I did. And he showed up. And I went and flew. I was in the air five minutes. And I went, this is it. This is it. I absolutely. And I'm the type of person that no matter what I do, it's either 110% or it's zero. There's no no 80% for me. There's no 99% for me. So, man, I went after it. And for the next eight months, I studied. I got my private pilot's license uh, in 1998. How much did it cost to, to do that, by the way? Back then, about $4,000. Okay. Today, about eleven. Yeah. yeah. I, I got mine in 2015. Yeah. So. How much did it cost to? Nine. Yeah. And yeah. I was paying as I got the money. Because, yeah. I mean, I was an EMT making jack. Yeah. I'm yeah. like, jack as an EMT. I was running airplanes. I was running, since you're familiar with it, I was running airplanes at $37 an hour, and I was paying my instructor 19 Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That was in 1992, 93. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And to, today, today I flight instruct, and it's about $140 an hour for the airplane, and it's about 60 for the instructor. It's about $200 yeah, an hour. I, I paid, I think, 125 for the airplane yeah. and 40 for the instructor. Yeah, 50 yeah, for the instructor. crazy. And that, that was five years ago. Five years ago, yeah. Yeah. It's gone up exponentially. Yeah. So, so in 98. 98, I decided to go get my IFR, 
And okay. uh, so I started my Explain iPhone. that. So I got my instrument flight instrument flight rating. Why is it important? allows me to fly in the yeah. clouds, allows me to fly in the rain, allows me to fly basically in zero, zero conditions, yeah. right? Uh, because you're flying by instruments. That's why they call it the instrument rating. So I got that, and then that's when I decided to go back to school. I went and got my bachelor's degree, went and got my master's degree, got okay. that all in order. And then um, <clears throat> I went to, when I was a lieutenant, I went to a thing called uh, California Command College, uh, which is just a, it's just a supervisory, uh, like a lead, another, another leadership type school. And, for uh, police officers? For police officers, okay. yeah, for lieutenants, okay. for command staff. That's why I call it command, for command level police officers, command level ranks that allowed you to go to school. And I met a guy in the class who was studying his private pilots. So I hooked up with him, said, hey, you know this, and we, you know, I never met the guy before. He worked for a, a agency called San Marino Police Department, which is right next to Pasadena. Mm. And uh, he was a lieutenant there. Isn't it funny how like you start, you, you meet somebody oh, who's yeah. uh, uh, another yeah. pilot, and you're like, hey, yeah, right, exactly. you your friends. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, we do that all the yeah. time. Yeah, you know, I, I, you know, I didn't like you when I came in, but now I found <laughs> you're a pilot. I thought, man, who's this guy twisting his ankle and, you know, drooling all over himself? And then I found out he's a pilot. Uh, so, I'm nervous. Yeah. Ah, bald yeah. people make me nervous. Yeah, sure. Jeez. Yeah. So, uh, so Tim and I hooked up at command college, started talking, and he told me that his boss, who was the police chief for San Marino, was a brand new flight instructor. And he goes, I want you to, I want to introduce you to, to Gary. So I met Gary, you know, at some point. We all had lunch together. He's a flight instructor. And I remember talking to Gary and I said, you know, how come, what made you get your flight instructor? He goes, I'm getting ready to retire. Right. And this is what I'm going to do in retirement. And throughout the conversation, he goes, he goes, you know, Russ, he goes, I'm so new. He goes, I've never trained a commercial pilot before, which is the higher rating right above private, right? Private, commercial, yeah. and airline transport pilot. He goes, I want you to be my guinea pig. He says, you rent the airplane, I'll teach you for free. Don't charge me, which was kind of a cop thing, but it was also, I've never done this before. I want the experience. Okay. So be, at this point, you had your IFR and uh, I had my private IFR pilot. and uh, yeah, I had my private, had my IFR, went back to school, got yeah. my degree. So this yeah. is about four years later, five so years later. What year? About 2005. Okay. And um, so I said, yeah, sure, I'll take it. So he taught me commercial. So then fast forward, got my commercial pilot's license, didn't do anything with it, just got it. Couple of years. How, how many years? I mean, how many uh, hours? Like 200? Or 250. 250? 250 to be a commercial pilot, yeah. So, and I think by that time, I had owned an airplane, but I think by that time I had six or 700 hours. That wasn't oh, wow. really even an issue. So then, at some point, I'm thinking about leaving the department, right? I'm thinking about, you know, what am I going to do when I retire? So I went back to Gary, said, hey, how would you like to teach a CFI? And by this time, he's retired. Yeah, I'll teach you. So I went back and I got my CFR and I see if I certified flight instructor. Mm -hmm. So I started teaching, right? <clears throat> and uh, was he a CFII? And he was a CFII. Yeah. So I went back and got my CFII, which now allows me to teach instrument students. Yeah. So I got that. Well, then I retired. I left the department and I was retired for 10 months. I mean, I literally was like, home for 10 months and my wife said you know you're gonna find something to do the same working <laughs> yeah, this, this, I, I liked you a lot more before so i went to a flight school and and i started teaching uh and i got ended up getting my multi-engine commercial rating uh and then 
five years after that, I ended up getting my multi-engine instructor rating so I could teach multi-engines. Okay, so just uh, from from zero to to multi-engine commercial rating, nice. how many hours and how much did it cost you? Just oh, so people wow. know. So 1993 to 2010, um, hours-wise, see, hours, I mean, I had a lot of hours by then, but but the only thing that was required was 250 hours, yeah. right? But by then, I think I probably had 2,500 hours. 2500 Which that, hours. that's what, like a lot of us, they, right. they log you by your hours. That's correct. So you can't just get it, hey, I have these certs. You right. have to have, okay, 15,000 yeah. hours to be this one. In order to be an airline transport pilot, which allows you to go to work for Southwest yeah. United, you have to have 1,500 flight hours. So I'd, I'd even exceeded that, yeah. but I wasn't headed that, down that career. Which it seems like every year those hours started to increase. Yeah. And a lot of the uh, avi- the uh, Air Force was fulfilling those positions. That's right. So when they cut the Air Force during right. the 2008 to 2016, mm-hmm. there was a massive airline uh, pilot shortage. That's right. And so they cut the hours again. It was, I don't, I don't, I, then it was 15,000. It got up a lot more. There's like 50,000, wasn't no, it? No, 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 no. No? You sure? It was never that high. Okay. No, no, no. There's, there's, there's. Huh? 1,500. 1,500. I know, but I, I thought it, I thought it oh, increased no. exponentially. Okay. I think the highest that it was ever been to be a commercial pilot was maybe 2,500 hours. It was, it was never that okay. high. Okay. I mean, here's people that retire from the airlines with 50,000 50, hours. Yeah, maybe so that's something. It was never that high. So 93, 2010-ish, um, 2,500 hours, and I probably invested um, $70,000, maybe $75,000 in all that flight time and all of that. So from zero to multi. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, zero to multi, probably $75,000. With zero loans. Yes, zero Uh, loans. Well, that's huge. Thank God I had a great job, right? And I was paying for it. And keep in mind also that if you want to go to the airline Southwest Delta United American, remember you have to have a bachelor's degree. Yeah. So on top of all of those hours and ratings and all that, you're also paying $25,000, dollars for, for a minimum bachelor's degree. Well, nowadays, so JetBlue has a zero to captain or zero to first lieutenant right. or whatever. And it's a four-year bachelor's degree in aviation, but it's like $280,000. Right. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It's, like, you know, it's, it's more than some doctors right. pay for their yep. school. Yep. Just you be a captain. University of North Dakota, Emory Riddle. I mean, all those colleges, it's two hundred and fifty yeah. to $300,000. You get a degree, but, you know, but how long are you paying those loans for? Because you're you're starting off like 45000 Exactly. First officer, yes. Yeah. yeah, it's crazy. You're, you're, you're exactly right. First officer is forty-five to maybe maybe sixty thousand dollars with yeah. a little bit of seniority, yeah. and then you get jumped <laughs> over into the to the captain's seat, and uh, you actually take a cut, and it takes you ten see, years. I didn't know that. Oh yeah, and it takes you ten years before you get up into the six digits, you know, six figures. Because you're captain with minimal hours as captain. Right. You're a junior captain, right? You're not going to make money <laughs> until you're a training captain. Which, how many years as a captain does you actually start making? Ten to twelve years. That's crazy. Yeah. So you really invested 15, 20, 25 years before you actually make six figures. That's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> yep. So okay, I started yeah. teaching. So I started teaching and I got an opportunity to uh, Gary, the guy that, that taught me commercial CFI. He calls me up one day. He's working for a, a community college in Southern California called Mount San Antonio College. And he says, hey, we have a couple of flight instructor positions open. You got to come over here. It's connected with the college. Um, you're an independent contractor. You're not working for anybody. The money's better. You don't have to recruit students because they're college students that are coming to you. There are a lot of benefits. Yeah. I went over. I got the job at the college. I started teaching there. 
and I taught flight instruction for 10 years. Wow. And uh, they're at the community college. Well, so I, what, what age did you retire at? How old were you when you retired? Uh, how old was I? Yeah. I was 48 when okay. I retired. And so another 10 years mm -hmm. of flight instructor. That's correct. Wow, that's awesome. And then I, I was at the college flight instructing for two years, for the first two years, and the department chair for the college came to me and said, would you be interested in coming on campus and teaching an aeronautics class on campus? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to do that. So I did, and I started off, I taught an aircraft engines and systems class, which I knew nothing about, absolutely nothing. But they had some really cool textbooks. So I taught this class, and then they gave me a private pilot class, and they gave me a weather class. And so I did this adjunct thing for about that same period of time, for, for the next eight years, for this 10 years total. And uh, it was a fun gig. I mean, I enjoyed it. They, the California teachers... $90 an hour, they were paying me to teach a, a three-hour class, $90 an hour. It was crazy. California Teachers Union is the most powerful union in the country. Really? And, oh, yeah. No, it is. Seriously. Their huh. paying benefits is unbelievable. And I was just adjunct. No benefits, no anything. But 90 bucks an hour to stand up and talk about airplanes, right? <laughs> Rough life. And I was flight instructing at the same time. So I did that for eight years, and then last September, a year ago, I'm sorry, a year ago, September, so in September of 2019, I was sitting in the adjunct office getting ready to teach a class, department chair walks in, he says, hey Russ, he goes, the, uh, the president of the college just approved a full-time professorship for aeronautics, huh. and we're going to teach, we're going to have another full-time professor. He says, we're looking for good people to apply. Huh. Russ, we're looking for good people to apply. Wow. And I'm like, yeah, okay, Robert, I'll, I'll, I'll ask around. I know some people. And I did. I said, I know some people. It would be interesting. He goes, yeah, we're really looking for good people. Yeah, I get it. I'll, I'll see if I can find And Because you know, I've been retired now 10, 11, year, 11 years now. You know, I, I don't want to go back to work full time. We're literally looking at someday moving out of California. Yeah. You know, not interested. I go home, some point, I tell the wife, you know, hey, you know, uh, Robert came in, blah, blah, blah. She goes, did you even ask? Did you even inquire about, A, what you're going to teach? B, what does it mean to be full-time? And C, are they going to pay you? And by the way, you realize our medical insurance is crap? And mm -hmm. we're paying, like, you know, we're paying $1,400 a month out of pocket for medical experience. My wife went through a bout with breast cancer, and we just paid thousands of dollars above the premiums and all that. She said, did you even ask? No, I didn't ask. Well, why don't you at least ask the question? So within the next couple of weeks, I go back. I run into this department chair again. I said, hey, what's this person going to teach? Only commercial aviation. Because we offer, at the college, we offer commercial aviation, air traffic control, drones, and flight dispatching. And he goes, only commercial aviation. And I said, I'm not going to teach drones. I'm not going to teach air traffic. No, 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 no. Just commercial aviation. Okay. What does it mean to go full-time? Oh, well, full-time for a California teacher is 15 hours a week. 15? And I said, did you say 50 or 15? No, 15, one five. And that's considered full-time. Yeah. I go, so what do I do with the other 25 hours? Because I said, most normal people work a 40-hour work week. So what do I do with the... Well, you know, you're going to have office hours and, 
you're going to have to put lesson plans together. And I'm thinking back in my head, my lesson plans are already put together. I've been doing this for yeah. the last eight years. Yeah, you know, there's other stuff, you know, but you got you got to teach 15 hours a week. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, what about paying benefits? Not my thing. Make an appointment with HR. So the next couple of days, I made an appointment with HR. I went over to talk to HR and sat down and said, you know, can you talk to me about the paying benefits? Oh, yeah. Full medical, full vision, full dental. Um, second retirement. You work five years in the system, we'll give you a second retirement. That's fully vested. Yeah, five years to get vested in. Um, and um, we'll start you out at $93,000 a year. Oh, my Lord. And I went, this is not, this is not, you got to be kidding me. So I actually did a bunch of homework. I started you know, looking into this to just see. There's a know, catch. There has to be a catch. I, I thought I was like in fantasy land uh. Disneyland or something. And I ended up testing for the position, met with the vice president of education at some point. And uh, last September, uh, a year ago, September, I started full time. That's crazy. 15 hours a week. And that's what I do now is I teach aeronautics. I teach private pilot, instrument pilot, ground school, aircraft engine systems, weather, um, federal aviation regulations. Um, wow. I'm not doing too much in the cockpit training anymore. Uh -huh. I'm doing a little bit, kind of, kind of just some specialty work and kind of. What, what do you fly? Training. I own a VTAIL Bonanza. Mm. I own I own a VTAIL. That's it. I own a VTAIL Bonanza. That's awesome. And um, what's special about that? It just looks really sexy. Oh, I know. <laughs> I, I, just, I started with the the 172s, the, the little yeah. 172 Skyhawks. It's just. It, Ground speed of like 80 knots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not much. You know, yeah. in Spinks, have you flown out of Spinks at all? No. Um, it's gotten pretty busy because it's between like Meacham, DFW's is right there. So yeah. you'll get a lot of that traffic. Um, and I'll be doing my touch and goes, and I'll be, there's a Bonanza and a, a King Air. Yeah. They just right there with me. And it's so fun to watch oh, them. Yeah. And I'm in my little Cessna 172. Like, yeah. Man, screw this. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I'm in the air. Yeah. I'm in the air. Exactly. It's been a long time. Yeah. No, it's a fun airplane. Fun airplane to fly. Cruises about 170 knots. Increase. I don't think I've ever gone that fast. Maybe with a tailwind. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, so I teach and I do a little bit of a little bit of in cockpit training, but not not much. Most of it's on campus now. And tell um, me a lot about your uh, trips down south. So, um, there's an organization called Liga International. L I G A. Liga stands for the League in in Mexico, and uh, this organization was founded in 1934. So it's been around huh. 86, 87 years. It's been around. And uh, I got involved in it through some buddies at the airport. And uh, what this, it's a 501c3, completely nonprofit. Um, and what it is, is it's private airplane owners who own their own aircraft. And they fly doctors, nurses, support staff, translators, anesthesiologists, um, optometrists, dentists, supplies. fly them into, what is it? Supplies. Supplies, all kinds of supplies. And we fly into um, uh, an airstrip in El Forte, Mexico. And El Forte is located on the northern end of Sinaloa. Uh, and if you've ever heard of Sinaloa, Mexico, you can go on the United States State Department website, pull up the State Department website, and there's five, the top five places that the United States State Department tells you not to fly to, <sighs> not visit or not travel. It's like Syria, wow. Afghanistan, Iraq. North Korea, I, I don't know, and Sinaloa, Mexico is in the top five. Really? It's How long has it been top five? Uh, quite a while. It's the hometown of El Chapo. Oh, it's the hometown. He was, uh, yeah, he was arrested. His last arrest before after he escaped 
was like 35 miles from El Forte, Mexico. Wow. It's a home state. And it's 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 drug lord country. Yeah. It's just full of drugs, yeah. full of violence and, and all kinds of stuff. Wow. We're on the northern edge, kind of out of the danger zone, I guess. That's but, relative. But, but it's <laughs> very, yeah, exactly. It's a very poor farm town community. No hospitals, very few doctors, uh, very few dentists. And uh, we fly in, we'll fly in 15 to 25 aircraft on a weekend. We fly in typically on an early Friday morning and we bring all these supplies and doctors in. We have our own medical building. The building is not open unless we're there. It's our building. We own it. Uh, And we go in, we open it up and we do dental and we do cataract. We'll do 80 cataracts on a weekend. Uh, We do major surgeries, hysterectomies. Uh, what they call bladder sl- uh, sl- slings, uh, all kinds of different, some pretty significant stuff. We'll move cancerous lesions. Every weekend? From people. No, one. I'm sorry, the first weekend of every month. Okay. First wow. weekend of every month. And, um, you know, it's all volunteer. It's a thousand percent volunteer. The doctors, the nurses. I, I became president of the organization. Uh, I don't know how that happened. I became president <laughs> of the organization four years ago. Just, yeah, we'll in, just in slip my, that in. Yeah, I just slipped okay. that in. All right. And, um, I have one paid employee, one paid staff in the entire, it's about an 800-person organization. Oh, wow. I have one, and that's my accountant, and her job is to keep me out of federal prison because we deal in about a million dollars a year through private donations, wow. uh, through an annuity that we have. Somebody uh, somebody long before my time passed away and left us a half million dollars. Huh. It's invested to make money off the basically so off nobody the gets paid market. but that one person she gets paid a $700 a month stipend uh, and that's all she does is maintain our books and deals with the tax I have an accountant that's on my board uh, he's volunteer but she the, the the actual accountant who's run the bookkeeper I should say her job is just to manage receipts and money wow. and verify and all of that everybody else is a thousand I'm thousand percent volunteer nobody gets paid wow. a dime and we take and we treat these folks. My daughter, my oldest daughter, is a nurse. Uh, she's a post-op nurse, uh, and uh, she travels with me and huh. goes down and works in surgery. And um, unfortunately, we haven't been down since uh, March because of COVID. COVID yeah. And COVID down there is out of control, absolutely out of control. There's, I was just there last weekend um, to inspect the new building we built. Nobody's wearing masks. Nobody cares about anything. They're having parties out in the street. There's, there's no safety precautions at all, so COVID's out of control. Are they actually seeing a lot of death? Yes, absolutely. In the hospitals, there's no hospital in town, but there's a hospital about 30 miles away. It's maxed out. Is it, and that, out. that's not normal? No, absolutely not. On a typical day, what's it run? What's that? The hospital. Like how many? On a, like half full or 20% full? Oh, I, I estimate. Yeah, I would say about half, maybe, maybe 60% or so. Huh. But, uh, Do you know any of the numbers for actually people who are dying? No. No, I don't. you just know it's bad. I don't because to be honest with you, even if they gave me a number, I wouldn't believe it. Yeah, because the information coming out of Mexico is <laughs> honestly it's it's yeah. skewed information wow. at best. Yeah, I wouldn't believe it if they told me. But it's a great organization. We do a lot of work. I mean, we treat on the average about six thousand patients a year, and we don't charge once them a month a dime. The so first weekend we treat all day Friday, all day Saturday. We fly home on Sunday. And six, how, how many? We six have two, thousand. We have two medical clinics. Six thousand so, divided by twelve months. Three, five hundred. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty average. All of our supplies are donated. You know, we all of the medical equipment. Do you have regular donors? 
Yeah, yeah, we have regular donors. I have a donor out of uh, Chicago, Illinois, who just has just been uh, unbelievable, huh. unbelievable. He just built us a new medical building. We just built a new wow. uh, surgery center and a dental center. That's what I went down last weekend to inspect, and uh, he gave us one hundred eighty thousand dollars. Wrote us a check, uh, and he been he's been down there and he see, he sees what we do down there. He just him wow. and his wife just you know. How do you, how do y'all find the doctors and nurses? Uh, we we recruit, we volunteer. It's mostly by word of mouth, but we've done some like uh, like an anesthesia conference. We'll go to an anesthesia conference and set up a booth, and you know people come by. We recruit pilots at AOPA events, yeah. aircraft owners and pilots yeah. association. They'll put on these. We'll go to those. We'll, we'll pay for a booth, and we'll recruit pilots out of there. What are the requirements for that? Uh, four hundred hours. Uh, four hundred hours total time. If you do not have your IFR, I'm sorry. Opposite. If you have your IFR, 400 total pilot and command hours. If you don't have your IFR, 600 yeah. total pilot and command. And wow. that's it. You have to own your own airplane. Uh, you can't rent or lease an airplane to fly it into Mexico. Why is that? They don't, Mexican government doesn't like it. Mexican government wants you to be the airplane owner. Why? Um, who knows? Huh. I, you know, if you ask them, they would tell you because they're worried about drug running. And they want the aircraft to be registered to the person who's actually flying it. I frankly think it's just a lot of bureaucracy. So how is it when you fly uh, through international airspace? Because leaving the border from Texas sure. to Mexico, on the maps, there's, it shows a big line, you sure. know, international airspace. You typically have to get clearance for that. Sure. Explain some of that. So when you leave the United States, you have to be on a, on a flight plan. You have to be yeah. on a, a IFR or a VFR flight plan. Yeah. You have to cross the border on the flight plan. The second you cross the border, your flight plan is dead because the United States cannot govern anything in another country. But the reason you follow your flight plan is because Department of Homeland Security literally wants to know who's crossing that international border. Right, um, there's a thing called EAPIS, and I don't even know what EAPIS stands for, but it's something to do with uh, 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 the Border Patrol, Customs and Border Patrol, and it's EAPIS stands for like I don't know something about international plans or something, and you have to fill out all these documents, and I literally take a stack of documents out high to Mexico. Who's the pilot? Who's your passengers? What's your passport number? Where do they live? What's your date of birth? All of their identifying information. All of that stuff has to be filed prior to you even going. Once you get into Mexico, there's no there's no rules. There's no rules, and there's no it, there's technically airspace, but there's no uh, there's no air trap. There's no radar. There's no air traffic control. So I'll cross the border basically uh, in the Tijuana Mexicali area. Uh-huh. I'll be out of radar con- contact for the next. 300, 350 nautical miles. And then I go through a small patch where there is actual radar. It's a big international airport. And then you have to land at an international airport in Mexico because you have to clear Mexican customs. So what happens Uh, if you don't follow your flight plan and you don't land at one of those international airports? uh, They're coming after you? Yeah, they're coming after you big time. And they catch you. I mean, needless to say, major fines are involved. Uh, but I, I just didn't know if like, I was trying to flee the country for something oh, I did. No. <laughs> it, it, it'd be ugly. They'll be waiting for you. Uh, One of the rules in Mexico is every single airport in Mexico has to have uh, Mexican military on, on the airport. I don't care if it's a strip. I don't care if huh. it's a dirt field out in the middle of nowhere. There, there's Mexican military there. So there'll, there'll be somebody huh. there to receive you when you try to skate over the border. 
Wow. There'll be somebody there to, to greet you while you while what, if, what if I don't land in, on an airport? If yeah. I just want to land on a backyard. Yeah. Good luck with that. <laughs> Good luck with that. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's crazy. So have, have you dealt anything with... Uh, because you're bringing medical supplies and you're bringing things that are actually helping the community. Right. Are the gangs and the mafia just kind of hands off? Yep. Yep. They, 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 they tell us, I've never met them. I've never wanted to meet them. But they tell us, the Mexican locals tell us they know who we are. That the cartel knows that Liga International and the people from America, the American doctors, are coming down to help their people. And um, they leave us alone. We've never had an ounce of problem. Never hmm. had any problem. We take precautions. We don't. We, we travel in groups. Uh, we don't ever walk alone, especially the ladies. We will escort them to and from their hotel to the medical clinic. We tell our people leave your um, leave your jewelry at home. Hmm. Only travel with fifty bucks on you. Yeah. Um, I mean, we take precautions. We we tell our people do not go to bars, do not go to nightclubs. Yeah. Don't really hang out and stuff <laughs> like that. You know, stay with your group, go eat at a restaurant as a group. So we take precautions, but in, in 86, 87 years, we've never had anybody, we've never had a, a problem at all. Are those pretty deeply rooted connections yes. with yes. the gangs? Yes. Hmm. Yeah. Now, when it first started, was that something that had to, like negotiations almost had to occur? I don't know. I, that's way before my time. I don't believe so. I've never heard that. And I've talked to the previous five presidents prior to me and they've never mentioned anything about okay. that. I think it's just everything down there is word of mouth. You know, everything, everybody yeah. knows everybody, you know, and probably every big Mexican family down there has at least one family member that's part of the cartel. So they yeah. all talk, you know, yeah. and we've never had a bit of problem. Huh. Never had a bit of problem. Are there other uh, organizations with you guys or that no. you've come into contact with? Yes, there are other. There's a there's a group called uh, the Flying Samaritans. Yeah, and the Flying Samaritans them. they do exactly the same. They do the same thing. The difference with them is they don't have their own medical clinics, so they'll transport doctors and nurses down and maybe work in somebody's private doctor's office. Yeah. Or, and they work over on the Baja side, over on the other side yeah. of the Sea of Cortez. We work on the mainland side. Okay, uh, but yeah, Flying Samaritans. Um, there's a couple of other groups that, that do that. We're the largest. Really? Oh, yeah, we're the largest. That's awesome. I, I, I've never heard of you guys. Yeah. I don't know why. Yeah, LigaInternational.org. Because that's what I wanted to do for a long and, time. And probably the reason you haven't heard about it, um, in all honesty, is because we're primarily based out of California, Oregon, Nevada, Arizona. And that's it's pretty huh. much it. We're kind of stuck down in that corner right there. Because if you were to travel from Texas to El Forte, that's probably that's probably about an eleven to twelve hour flight. Mm. That's huge. Where I when I depart out of our airport in Southern California, uh, four and a half hours. Oh wow! Yeah. So there's a big difference, wow. you know. And that's we're, we're out on the West Coast because of where we're at. We have a lot of lot of pilots that fly out of Phoenix. It's only three hours for them. What? Yeah, you know, it's only three hours. So they basically take off, go over Tucson and Nogales. I keep and, forgetting because it takes me, you know, eight hours, seven hours to get to the coast. You right. know, from here, on, right. we're driving. Right. And you can drive 16 hours in Texas and still not leave the right. state, you exactly. know? Yeah. So it's kind of, I forget. Yeah. I forget. But yeah. that's kind of funny because that's like doing what you're doing right now right. is why I got my pilot's license. Yeah. Uh, I haven't been on fl fly in a while, but like there was actually a, uh, I went to Nigeria to do this exact same thing. Mm. Worked at a hospital for like two, two and a half weeks, something like that. Um, told them that I was getting my pilot's license. I said, oh, that's awesome. Um, a few months later, like, hey, we made an air, airstrip for you. <laughs> yeah. Like, hey, you want to come yeah. and be our pilot and, and fly from Abuja, 
which is the main capital city, and fly to Egbe, which was this, I mean, tiny, tiny, tiny uh, village in the middle of Nigeria. Sure. Um, and their issue right now is because the roads are so terrible in Africa, specifically Nigeria right now, um, they cannot get any of the supplies from the main capital city to the, uh, Egbe, which is where their main hospital is at. Right. And the hospital is being staffed by Samaritan's Purse. Um, so they actually had like a, he's a medical director in Colorado. He was doing the main surgeries and I got to help him a little bit, but their issue was lack of supplies, lack right. of awareness. So they needed supplies, but we, they couldn't get there. So they created an airstrip. And so I was going to go be the bush pilot. Like Molly and I, my wife and I were trying to figure out that if that's what we wanted to do and we we're going to pick up kind of everything and just go do it. And then the entire, uh, organization dismantled. Right. Right. I was like, okay, that's a closed door. Yeah, exactly. Didn't happen. But that's my passion. Like, right. what you're doing is, that's awesome. Right. So if other people like me, you know, if they want to get involved in this, because there are doctors I know right. who also, like, they love going to these, sure. these type of trips sure. and doing them. Sure. How do they get involved? Yeah, uh, go on legainternational.org. Uh, go on that website. There's all kinds of information. There's all kinds of places where you can sign up. You can ask questions. You send an email. If you send an email, it's going to come to me and to my my uh, secretary, my not my secretary, the organization secretary, uh, which she's just another volunteer. We'll get the email. One of us will respond back. But legainternational.org, um, and we do have doctors from all over the country. Uh, we have some ophthalmologists out of Minnesota, uh, and some dental people out of uh, Massachusetts. And what they do is they fly into Phoenix. They'll fly commercially into Phoenix. They'll pay their own way, fly into Phoenix, and they'll pick up one of our private airplanes out of Phoenix and fly fly uh -huh. down. So for pilots, that doesn't work very well yeah. because you've got to have an airplane. <laughs> but for volunteers, if they have the resources, they'll fly commercially uh -huh. into, typically into Phoenix. They could fly into L.A., but Phoenix is just a lot closer for them. Is so there a wait list? For oh, no. Oh, no. No, we need people. Really? Oh, yeah. No, okay. we need people. There's no wait list. No, no, there's no wait list. We'll put we'll put people to work. I'm not sure when we're going to go back to work. I'm I'm honestly thinking, you know, realistically, probably March or April uh, 21. Or 2021 before we're going to be able to start back up again. You know, I don't know if a vaccine is going to take care of the problem. I don't know. I I just don't know. Do you think outdoor clinics would be beneficial? Because if it is drop up precautions, technically the masks should work, quote unquote. Yeah, I I just. You know, I think that the pro I don't know where we would set up an outdoor clinic. The problem that, that I think I have and a lot of our, my my board members have that the first the last thing that we want to do is take the disease to them. You know, God forbid that we you know one of our staff people who works in the hospital already here in the states takes the virus down there and makes those people more sick. And then the other thing is, you know, we have a responsibility to protect our volunteers. You know, and what, you know, what are we doing after we work for three days in a, in a clinic? We're climbing into a small compact aircraft and we're flying for the next four and a half, five hours. So I just think there's a lot of precautions that need to take place um, before we're able to go down there. And it's just, it's sad, you know, that we haven't been down there. But Is it, yeah, this, take this question with a grain of salt. Um, your lack of going there for the past few months, have you... Have you noticed the difference in mortality even with y'all not being there since y'all are the main um, people providing care? And that's kind of been the issue today with yeah. COVID right. where, okay, you have a mass economic shutdown, but the mortality in other areas are right. creating way more issues than the actual disease itself. Yeah, you know, it's hard, it's hard to tell because honestly, the information that comes out of Mexico, it's really hard to believe anything. 
that comes out of there. Do I believe that that's true, that there's a much higher mortality rate? Yeah, I do. Because there's no hospitals down there. There's no place for these folks to get treatment anywhere, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so do I think it's had an increase in the overall mortality rate because we haven't? Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt. Mm-hmm. Can I put a number to that? Can yeah. I gauge that? Can I put a percentile to it? I can't. I can't. It's a difficult decision. It's because it's, and, you know, th- that was a decision that the board, you know, the whole board, we actually, we were told not to come down in March of 2020, and we went down anyway because we felt like, man, there's things we got to get done. We had surgeries planned. We had these things planned. We went down anyway. And then the decision was made after March that, you know, and, and Flying, Flying Samaritans, they shut down a month before, uh-huh. you know, and we just said, you know what, we got to go. But, you know, it's just, it's, we just got to be careful. I mean, it's, a, it's, we got to protect our own. I mean, you know, all these people have jobs back home. You know, they yeah. have careers. They're doctors. They're anesthesiologists. My daughter's a nurse. They have to work. We can't take them down there and get them all sick and bring them home. You know, we're, we're jeopardizing more than some, just somebody getting sick. We're jeopardizing their livelihood. Hmm. It's a it's a, a tough decision. It's a very tough decision. Very tough. That's decision. one of those situations that, like, yeah. hopefully most people don't have to be in yeah, to exactly. make that call. Yeah. And I'm guessing it's you and the whole board, right? It's the entire board. I got a I got an executive board. And I got a board of directors. I think there's like 17 of us total, you know, through the officers and all that. You know, I don't make these decisions in a vacuum. You know, yeah. I make these decisions with a lot of input. And, and a lot of people on my board are doctors and surgeons. And Does that have to be and, unanimous? No. Uh-uh. No. A majority? In, 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 this, in this particular, interesting how, the, how this was handled, the decision ultimately was mine. There was no vote. It huh. was the president of the organization decides whether or not we're going to travel under because of COVID. Yeah. But that decision was only made after probably about a three-hour board meeting of receiving all kinds of input. And if we would have voted, it would have been probably 16 to one to shut down operations. We would have had one bleeding heart that said, I don't care what you do. We have to go down to serve these people. Yeah. So, I mean, ultimately it was my decision, but really the board was in nearly hundred percent agreement. That this have, was the right thing to do. have you thought about like, cause COVID is probably not going away. Right. Um, it's a virus. It's already mutated. Right. I had the medical director of Fort Worth come on shoot a couple weeks ago he's saying there's about four or five different strains now of covid mm-hmm. um and it's mutated from the original of course the mutates typically the more a, a person can uh kind of adapt with it to where severity isn't as bad which is why we see severity not as bad since the first wave sure so if it's never going away how do you kind of fix that where well, the flu's never going to go away exactly right? the flu's never going to go toothaches are never going to go away so do you guys yeah. fly during flu season yeah yeah. Absolutely. So, what do you think? Are you kind of just waiting for the COVID to go to get yeah. dispersed in the population a little more, yeah. or yeah, or to come out with a vaccine that takes care of the majority of the? I mean, it's never going to be a perfect storm, yeah. you know, right? It's never going to be perfect. Never. There's not one silver bullet. No, it's not going to happen. But you know, I, again, the problem that we're having down there is nobody down in El Forte, San Blas, in Sinaloa, nobody's taking it serious. Nobody's taking it. So we have to take it more serious on our end. So until we can come up with a way and how we manage the people once we get down there, because we'll show up to a clinic and, and there'll be people that spent the night the night before on the roadway leading into the clinic. Mm. And we'll show up and there'll be 500 people trying to get through the front gates. Wow. We have to have a plan to manage that. 
whatever that is. I don't even know how to take in people's temperature. I'm not a doctor. Taking people's temperatures and washing their hands and, all, you know, wearing that, all these things. We have to come up with a plan to be able to manage all that. Is that plan being yes. worked out now? Yeah, I have a medical safety committee. Um, medical safety committee of doctors and nurses and I have an infectious disease mm. doctor on that committee that's awesome and they're working on plans and they're making a recommendation to the board to how much money we're going to need to spend on equipment and PPE mm. and all that other stuff so yeah all of that stuff is in is in progress so Liga how do you spell it L-I-G-A so LigaInternational.com dot org dot org dot org okay. mm-hmm. And they fill it out, and if yep. it'll go directly, yes. Yeah, and like I said, if there's questions, I mean, just send an email to, you know, to, through the website, and we'll get back to you. That's awesome. Yeah. For us, it is. We're at see, an hour and forty minutes. So yeah, it's, I'm worn out. I'm tired. <laughs> I can see the glaze. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for telling my story. Uh, yeah. It's been a pleasure to meet you and thank understand you. all this fun stuff. So yeah, thank you. Appreciate, appreciate coming it. on. All right. Welcome. All right bye.